0: If you have your Bibles open, turn to Daniel chapter 4. We'll actually be uh, going mostly through, uh, through Daniel chapter 4, although we will touch on Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 115. I just thought reading Daniel chapter 4 might take uh, a lot longer, so I thought you know we, we will be touching on Psalm 115, so I'd use that. So we're going to be finishing our, uh, our series today, our series on idolatry. Um, You know, one of the first things, one of the very, very first things that the Bible tells us about ourselves, tells us about humanity, is that humanity, mankind, was originally made in the image of God. That's from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. That's, That's the first thing the Bible tells us about you and me, is that we were made originally in the image of God. Throughout the Bible, we learn that we were created by him, through him, and for him. In other words, as his creation, as part of his creation, you and I were created for the purpose of subjecting ourselves to his will. He's the creator, we are the creation, thus we are subject to his will. We are subjected uh, to, to his will, We are originally Adam who was subjected to his will, but in sin he rejected that plan. When Adam sinned, he introduced a terrible reality into all of creation, and that is the desire for us to be our own gods. After all, wasn't the final thing that the serpent said before Adam and Eve sinned, the final thing he said is, oh, if you do this, you will be like God. And so when he ate the apple or the pear or whatever that fruit was from the tree of good and evil knowledge, he brought sin into creation, and the desire to be our own gods. The temptation was apparently just too great for him to resist. Adam transgressed the one command that he had been given, the one morally neutral instruction that he'd been given, in the rest is history. Now, if you were to actually go out and try to find somebody who who claims to be uh, God uh, and actually believed that they were God. The first place I I would start is the local psych ward. Um, Interestingly, there was actually a psychiatrist in the 1960s who wrote a book about his experiments with three men, each of whom believed and claimed to be none other than Jesus Christ. This is a true story. Um, The doctor wanted to break them of this this delusion uh, they had that they were Jesus Christ. And so so he had this, this theory, this hypothesis that he wanted to try out. He had the three men live together. They ate together, they slept in the same room, and every afternoon he would have a group therapy session with these three men, each of whom claimed to be and believed themselves to be Jesus Christ. Now, one would think that it would just be... A matter of time before somebody realized, oh, wait a minute, I, I can't be Jesus if this guy's Jesus, and this guy over here saying, oh, I, I can't be Jesus if this guy, and, and so it should, at least in theory, um, break them of this delusion that they had. That was the psychiatrist's uh, theory, anyway, uh, that they would eventually dismiss this ridiculous notion that they had. One of the uh, men once said in a group therapy session, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, and I've been sent to save the world. And the psychiatrist asked him, well, how do you know that? He said, because God told me. At which point, another one of them stood up and said, I did not tell you any such thing. And soon the third patient jumped into the mix as well, and chaos just broke out. And and that's what happened every time the subject uh, was approached. It was just chaos. So the result of this therapy, ultimately, was that each of the three men continued to believe that they were God, continued to believe that they were Jesus Christ, and whenever there was an argument or a disagreement or or a fight about the matter, each uh, each one of the men would simply conclude that the other two were completely delusional and belonged in a psyche psychiatric institution while continuing to believe that he himself each uh, individually was the messiah now we laugh at this it's it's kind of funny in a way there's a comical aspect to it but listen to what god says about uh, even those of us who don't belong in a psych ward and i know with me that's that's debatable he says this in ezekiel chapter 28 verse 2 he says because your heart is proud and you have said i am a god i sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man, and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. See, in our our flesh, in in our natural state, each one of us is born with this penchant, this, this inclination toward worshiping ourselves above all things. Rather than worshiping the God who created us, in his image, people return the favor and they kind of get this, this idea of God that's based on their own image, conforming God to their image. For example, uh, they might not like a God who uh, who has wrath, and so they believe in a God who is all love. Uh, they don't want a God who's strict and, and narrow-minded, and so the God that they believe in is completely tolerant of anything and everything, uh, all types of behavior. Uh, they want a God who will accept their, their worship no matter what and so they have a God who rejoices in external, uh, man-centered religiosity. They want comfort, convenience. They want prosperity uh, and good health, and so they form an understanding and and a belief in a God who will give them their best life now. Today, we're going to conclude our idolatry study, and the reason that we started this, the reason that the, the, the whole issue of idolatry is so incredibly important to our sanctification, our our continued growth in Jesus. The the reason it's important is pretty simple. It's because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Listen to what the psalmist said of the idolaters there in Psalm chapter 115. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, but they they have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, they have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell, they have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And so the contrast that the psalmist is making between the beginning of the psalm and, and these verses here is between the one true living God the Most High God and these idols that have been crafted by human hands, those who worshipped these, these lifeless idols uh, became like them. The idols were physically lifeless, right? We, we don't think that a block of wood that we you know paint a little smiley face on has any type of life in it whatsoever. And likewise, those who worshiped these man-made, handmade, hand-crafted idols were spiritually lifeless. They became just like the thing that they worshipped in the spiritual sense. The prophet Jeremiah echoed uh, similar thoughts, writing this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They went after worthlessness and became worthless. They became worthless like the thing they were pursuing, they became like the thing that they worshipped. Make no mistake about it. The degree to which you and I worship Jesus is the degree to which you and I will become like him. And if you love something more than you love Jesus, even a misunderstanding of of who Jesus is or maybe a misunderstanding of, of his purpose in coming to dwell on earth, you will become like that thing rather than becoming like the real Jesus of the Bible. And for that to happen, for us to become like something else, it involves turning our hearts away from the one true living God. And when that happens, as Jeremiah says here, we become worthless to God, worthless to his purposes. We become unusable. The application here seems pretty clear. We have to set our hearts and our minds continually on Jesus. When he is our greatest desire, when we are pursuing him above anything else and everything else, we grow in him. We become like him. When something else, conversely, is our greatest desire, it corrupts us and it causes us to stumble in the darkness. So what, what does this look like, uh, practically speaking, if you were to apply this principle that you become like the thing that you worship? Well, for example, let's say somebody worships money what do they become? Greedy. They become greedy. If, if they worship the approval of, of others, they become enslaved to the opinions and the demands of others. If they worship sex, they become enslaved to lust. They get filled with lust. If they worship tradition, they exalt humanity above God. If they worship accomplishment, ever heard of a workaholic? That's somebody who, worship, who worships accomplishment a lot of the times. The simple fact is this, if we're more interested in something other than God, we will become something lesser than which he created us to be. Now, you might not struggle with all these things that I just gave as an example. You may only struggle with one of them. You may only struggle with two or three or however many of them, but there is one idol, there is one idol that every single one of us, you and me, everybody, is guaranteed to face, and that is the God of me, me, me. Uh, one of my friends on Facebook called it the unholy trinity. Uh, there, there's the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the holy trinity. The unholy trinity would be me, me, and me. Uh, the God of me, me, me is arrogant totally self-absorbed, he tells us that we're always right, that we always know best, and that our ways are always the best ways. He tells us that we shouldn't pay any mind to anyone who might offer us some, uh, some wisdom or some insight. He forbids that we ever utter words such as, I was wrong, or I should have listened to you, or I- I'm sorry, I-, I was totally out of line. No, th- those are things that he will not have us say, oh, the God of me, me, me hates humility, hates stuff like that. The God of me, me, me is also very insecure. He forbids that we ever take risks uh, in fear of failing in front of others. Uh, maybe sometimes he convinces us that we, we don't look good enough, and so we have to do something to look better in front of people. There's a, a story in Greek mythology Um, of a a young man named Narcissus and he was a a very handsome young man and apparently he knew it because everybody told him how handsome he was and so one day Narcissus is walking by a stream and he looks down and he sees his reflection in the water and instantly he fell in love with this, this image of himself in the water because what he saw staring back at him from the water was so beautiful he just couldn't pull himself away from it. He gazed into that stream day and night and became obsessed with his own appearance. He was trapped in his own ego, and he eventually turned uh, into the narcissus flower, uh, left to bloom at the water's edge. And I, I haven't seen one, but what I imagine is it's one of those flowers that kind of droops over next to the water, and somebody said, hmm, let's call this a narcissus flower and get, make up this wild story about this kid who fell in love with his image but that's of course where we get the term narcissist, right? Everybody in here knows what a narcissist is. Somebody who's totally self-absorbed, somebody who really thinks super highly of themselves. But you know, since we are God's children, the world looks at us to see the reflection of God. That's what they're looking at when they look looking for when they look at us to see what God and his children are like, to see the image of God. And if we're caught up in narcissism, Uh, caught up in being just totally self-absorbed. The world will see a bunch of people who are only concerned with themselves, a church that really doesn't care a whole lot about anybody else, and ultimately they'll see a church that doesn't even believe their own teachings. So we have to look to God to be our first source, our primary source of comfort, significance, security, joy, and hope. Now, the fourth chapter of Daniel is maybe the most unusual chapter in the entire Bible, and I'm going to explain why that is. Daniel chapters 1 through 3 were written in uh, the Hebrew language, which is what uh, almost the entire Old Testament is written in. Uh, The exceptions are starting here in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, it switches to Aramaic, and that's because it's the personal testimony of a famous man whose native tongue was Aramaic. Uh, He was an earthly king who had the best of what this world has to offer. He had power. He had money. He had luxury. You name it, he had it. Uh, If he didn't have it, he knew how to get it. And he's the one who wrote this entire fourth chapter from the book of Daniel. At this point, you might be wondering, okay, so what's the big deal? Why is that odd? We need to understand that we're talking about a king who had this reputation of being just incredibly evil. He had this worldwide reputation of being incredibly evil. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. And, oh, I know what you're thinking. The bunny, the bunny, oh, I love. yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon, which was, at the time, the most powerful empire in The world. Uh, And you would probably remember that King Nebuchadnezzar was a personal hero of uh, none other than Saddam Hussein. Uh, He was somebody that Saddam Hussein, I would say, idolized. Uh, And that's why um, Saddam Hussein called himself the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, vicious man. Like Saddam Hussein, Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless leader. Jeremiah chapter 39 tells us about how Nebuchadnezzar murdered the sons of one of the kings of Judah right in front of that king's eyes. And the very next thing he did was turn around and gouge that king's eyes out with his own hands so that the last memory that king would have was of the brutal, mem- uh, brutal murder his sons. I I personally, as as the father of two kids, I can't imagine anything more heartless. Um, Many other uh, rulers and leaders from Judah were roasted to death over a fire. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful, evil man on the planet. His cruelty just had no equal. And so now you know why I say that the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel is probably the most unusual chapter of the entire Bible, because this guy who did all these ruthless things wrote a chapter of the Bible. Now keep in mind that anyone who was, who was reading this, this fourth chapter of Daniel back when it was written, uh, back in the, the age of uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they would have known about Nebuchadnezzar's reputation as being heartless, as being ruthless, as being evil. So keep that in mind. This is my challenge to you. Keep that in mind as we come to the text, uh, starting with verse uh, one, verses 1 to 3 in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples. That's kind of how sometimes Paul would start off a letter. Paul, to the, that's how, that's how letters were originally, or back in the day, that's how they were addressed. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. They had to be saying, what? Which King Nebuchadnezzar is this? It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And you know, we're probably thinking the same thing that people back in the day would have been thinking, what, King Nebuchadnezzar, are you kidding? This dude is crazy, he's evil, he's mean, he doesn't put up with anybody opposing him. And this great king of Babylon, he's not just acknowledging, but he is worshiping El Elyon the most high God of Israel. they, they got to be thinking, is this really the same guy? So basically what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, it, it, he's, he's written a worship song It's written in poetic form. He's written kind of a worship song. But who would expect it to come from a man like him? I mean, imagine turning on your TV and finding out that somebody like Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, uh, was just praising the Lord and and proclaiming the gospel message to the people of North Korea. And we'd say, what? What? Are, are you kidding? This dude, he, he thinks he is God. Uh, he thinks he's the continuation of, of his father, who, who he thinks was also a God. You, you wouldn't imagine that it would be possible that somebody like him would be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, but, it, but it happened. He, he was doing it. He was proclaiming the, the, the greatness of God. He's writing this worship song. How did he ever get to the point where he would do such a wild thing, such an unexpected thing? You know, one of the one of the things that screenwriters will do these days with uh, with TV shows uh, is that they will start an episode with the final scene, with the conclusion. You guys know what I'm talking about. Everybody's seen that before. Uh, and shows that what they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll start with this, this crazy scene that just throws you off and makes you say, what, you know, what? how could that have happened? Uh, and it causes you to, to wonder how that happens, and you keep that in mind as you go through the rest of the story. Suddenly the story jumps back to the beginning, and it builds back up to the scene that the episode started with. This is called reverse chronology, and that's how Nebuchadnezzar has written his story. He begins with the conclusion he begins with this great praise of God. And so what we see here in the fourth chapter of Daniel is the story of how this incredible change in King Nebuchadnezzar's life has taken place, how how it's come to pass. And he's now going to tell us how he went from worshiping this God of me, 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 being a total narcissist, being completely self-absorbed, completely self-reliant, how he went from worshiping that God to worshiping the one true living God. Look at Daniel chapter four, verse four. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I was at ease, I was prospering, life was going great. It couldn't have got a whole lot better. Uh, Look at how things are going for good old King Neb. Life is good, life's easy. He's just kicking back and prospering while he does it. Not only is he prosperous, but he is super prosperous prosperous. And on top of that, he's just content. Everything is good. As far as he knows, life can't get a whole lot better than this. He's living the good life that everybody has ever dreamed of. But as he's relaxing here at the pinnacle of this dreamy life, something goes terribly wrong for him. If you look at verse 5, we learn that he has a nightmare that absolutely terrifies him. In fact, this nightmare that he has is so haunting, uh, he can't just let it go. You know, usually when you wake up from a nightmare, you're like, whew, glad that's over. I'm, I'm just glad to be awake. But this nightmare haunts him. He can't just let it go. And so he demands an interpretation. And so he summons all of these, these wise men, uh, these, these uh, magicians, astrologers, and so on and so forth. But verse t- uh, 7, look down at verse 7. It tells us that not a single one of them was able to make any sense of this horrible dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Let's skip down to verse 13 and take a look at what this nightmare was all about, what happened in this nightmare. Uh, starting with verse 13 to 16. Uh, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree And lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him." and all of this hit him so hard. He remembered all of this, and he just couldn't let it go. It had to mean something. So when nobody is able to make sense of this, this horrific nightmare, this dream that's just haunting him, somehow Daniel gets summoned. Um, interestingly, uh, he tells us that Daniel's uh, name in in the in Babylon had become Belteshazzar, which strangely enough, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells us was the name of Nebuchadnezzar's god. Uh, that's the name that he had given to Daniel. Uh, but Daniel's in a predicament here because he can interpret this dream, just like he did back in chapter two with, uh, with King Nebuchadnezzar, when King Nebuchadnezzar had another dream that he demanded an interpretation of. But he's in a predicament now because he realized that the dream means really, really, really bad news for the most powerful, corrupt, evil, egotistical, ruthless man on the planet. Now, if we think about some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did to anyone who opposed him, to anyone who said anything that he didn't like, you have to imagine that Daniel had to be kind of scared for his life at this point. But does Daniel (laughs) seek to please man? Or does Daniel seek to please God? It's a no-brainer. And so he cuts straight to the chase. He's going to please God. He's going to do what God has called him and gifted him to do. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar the horrible truth about this dream uh, that was just revealed to him. Starting in verse 20, Daniel says this to the king. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so so that its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion ends to to the ends of the earth. Now remember, Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, had become the largest and most powerful city in the entire world. But here's what probably troubled Nebuchadnezzar about this dream. This is the thing that haunted him, and that was the fact that this tree that he saw, this great tree, was going to be chopped down. Somebody had the power to chop it down. The tree represented himself, and it comes down. No wonder it troubled him so deeply. And so Daniel continues in verses 24 and 25 saying this, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Oh, it's all in somebody else's hands. It's not really in King Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And this is a major reality check for a man who was essentially his own God. He was totally self-sufficient. Everything that he had, He believed that he had uh, gotten it it for himself. It had come from his hand. He had basically uh, possessed everything that anyone could possibly want, and if he didn't have it, he knew how to get it. But here's the hard lesson. Here's the reality that he needed to be confronted with. None of it, none of it was really his. None of it was ultimately his. It all belonged to El Elyon, the Most High God. And until King Nebuchadnezzar, comes to that realization, the Most High God is going to allow him, allow King Nebuchadnezzar, to become like the lifeless God that he has spent so many years worshiping because we become like the thing that we worship. Now, if we could just uh, press the the proverbial pause button for just a moment on this story, I think this is probably a good time uh, to help us understand what it looks like, even in our day and age, and in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day and age, what it looks like when a person is on the throne of their own heart, when they are worshiping the God of me, me, me. Uh, So I have a a series of questions for us. The first question is this. What motivates you? What motivates you? What gets you excited or filled with anticipation? Uh, For Nebuchadnezzar, it was having others look at him uh, and think as highly of him as, as, as he did, Uh, In fact, back in chapter 2, Daniel interpreted this other dream for Nebuchadnezzar in which uh, Daniel tells him that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is represented by this this golden head uh, on a large statue. And Daniel tells him that this kingdom will eventually fall uh, because God's kingdom is coming and God's kingdom is everlasting. It'll last forever. Oh, but what an honor to be the golden head. Nebuchadnezzar, was his, his kingdom was the golden head, and so what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes, in, and if you look in chapter 3, this is the bunny part, uh, he, he makes this golden image, probably in the likeness of his face or his head, because he just had this dream interpreted. He goes and he builds this golden idol that he wants everyone in the kingdom to bow down to, when he says so. Uh, He's also famous, Nebuchadnezzar is also famous for building uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, It's really impressive stuff. King Nebuchadnezzar loved to impress others. He loved it when others thought as highly of him as he did. That was his motivation. What's yours? Number two, how do you measure success in life? What is it that you measure your life by, what, what? what's the standard of success for you? For King Nebuchadnezzar, it was personal gain. It was having everything that this world had to offer, having the, the biggest palace, having the biggest city, having the, the biggest army, having the best of, of everything, the best that this world had to offer right at his fingertips whenever he wanted. That was his measure of success. Number three, here, here's the big one. What's your source of power? What is it that strengthens you? What is it that encourages you? Are you most likely to find it by looking in the mirror? Are you most likely to find it by looking in a stream and finding your image? Nebuchadnezzar's source source of strength was himself. He completely relied on himself. He didn't see the need to look anywhere else, any further than the tip of his nose. Look at what he says in verse 30. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. He says, is this not... Uh, is, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Wow. Yeah, okay, no, that, that was his source of power himself. That was what he looked to for encouragement. Oh, look at me. Oh, look at all the things I've done. Look at all the great things that I possess. It's all about my glory. Question number four. What's your purpose in life? What do you live for? What do you wake up for in the morning? For King Nebuchadnezzar, it was happiness. It was was feeling satisfied with himself. And if you really want to take this question further, if you really want to answer this question honestly, look at your calendar. Go through your calendar and take a look at the things that you do. Study it. What do you see in terms of patterns of priorities? Where do you spend your time? That, that can usually be a pretty good indication of the purpose that you regularly pursue. Now Nebuchadnezzar's answers to these questions are the same answers that we give when we are worshiping the God of me, me, me. We're all tempted to answer with the same answers that he would have answered with. God of me, me, me. But God, the true God, El El is about to give Nebuchadnezzar the boot off the throne of his own heart. And I kind of imagine it like, you know, if there was a, a spider right up here on the edge of the pulpit, I'd just reach over and just flick it off right onto Craig. <laughs> and, and that's what God's about to do with Nebuchadnezzar in the seat of his heart. And so Daniel tells the king, You're about ready to be cut down, the clock is ticking. His reign was coming to an end. Nebuchadnezzar will soon be living like an animal and uh, and eating grass like cattle. He'll be sleeping in grass, waking up with dew all over his body. But it was all avoidable. It was actually all avoidable. Look at what Daniel says in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. In other words, repent break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's not giving any guarantees, but he's saying if you stand any chance of holding on to all this stuff that you love so much, you're going to have to turn your heart to the most high God. He's trying to warn the king, but one of the things that happens when a person when a person worships the God of me, 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 is they don't tend to hear, they don't tend to pay a whole lot of attention to advice. They don't tend to take correction very well. And so this warning of the need to repent, this warning to turn away from his sins and turn his heart to God goes unheeded. He could have just turned from his sin and saved himself from going through this really, really really hard lesson. Uh, man, anyone ever been there? Maybe not for seven years lying in a grass field, but has anybody ever uh, had to have a lesson taught to you by the School of Hard Knocks? I have been there, done that. I've got the scars to prove it. He, he, he could have said, you know what, Daniel? You're right. That's exactly what I need to do. And so I'm going to repent before the the Most High God right now. I've I've done wrong. I've ignored wise counsel. And I've been worshiping the God of me, me, me all of my life. But now I'm going to bow before God and just confess that he is Lord and turn my heart over to him. He could have just said that and done that. But like anyone who worships the God of me, 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 he ignores the wisest advice He's ever received. And what happens? Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All the things that were foretold in his dream and interpreted about his dream, it all came about. It all happened. Twelve months later, God declares, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Now, if, if you were to ask me or, or, you know, just anybody, how do you think this type of thing would happen? Uh, we, we might say, well, you know, over a period of time, he's, he's probably going to lose some big wars. Uh, he's probably going to, you know, get old and senile or, you know, something like that. You know, th- there's going to be this gradual process. Maybe, you know, maybe he'd just go insane uh, after, after losing a battle or just of old age. Who knows? But that's not what happens. Look at verse 33. Daniel chapter 4, verse 33 says, Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Immediately. Immediately. As soon as God said this, it was over. Just as suddenly as these words are spoken, King Nebuchadnezzar flees from his castle, flees from his guards, flees from any protection he might have on earth. He runs right to the outskirts of Babylon, and he keeps going, and he keeps going, and going, and going, until finally he's out in no man's land. He's out in a place where nobody is going to find him, living among the beasts of the field. Now, that was verse 33. If you look at verse 34, it's actually seven years later. Uh, he doesn't tell us anything that happened, anything that transpired, anything that he experienced over these seven years. Uh, why not? Well, you know, maybe because uh, he, he lost his mind. He, he had the mind of a beast, and so he didn't uh, remember them. Or maybe he, he just doesn't tell us because they're really not that significant. Whatever the case, immediately after, uh, after this happens, we read in verse 34, at the end of the days seven years. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Wow, what a great thing to realize. It only took him seven years but this is exactly what Daniel was trying to tell King Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2 when he interpreted the king's dream. Skip down to verse 37. Here Nebuchadnezzar tells us, this is the close of the chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. You get that? This, this thing that he just went through? The seven years of living in the grass and living in the fields, losing his kingdom, losing everything that he had, his works are right and his ways are just. That's truly a transformed heart. And he says, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the filled he empties, the empty he fills. That's how... King Nebuchadnezzar went from being this evil, egotistical, self-centered, ruthless dictator, maybe the the cruelest on the face of the earth at the time, definitely one of the cruelest in history, to being a person who humbly worships the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar takes himself off the throne of his heart. He steps down. He doesn't want it anymore. It was ultimately never his to begin with, right? Right? Just as the psalmist wrote, "The earth is the Lord, and ever is the Lord's, and everything in it, everything, including our hearts, they were made for Him. He will judge them; they are in His hand." And so Nebuchadnezzar learned that there is only one God, and it wasn't Him. It wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar. If we were to run those those, uh, those four questions, that, that series of questions that I brought up a few minutes ago, if we were to run those by him again. He would answer those questions entirely different. Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar, what motivates you? Well, instead of impressing others and having other people think as highly of him as he thought of himself, his only concern now was pleasing the Most High God. King, uh, what's your standard for success? Instead of increasing in personal gain, his answer would be increasing in personal faithfulness to God increasing my, my yield, my surrender to God? What's his purpose? Uh, what's his source of, of power and strength? Instead of relying on himself, he's learned to rely on God. Uh, what, what's his purpose in life? Instead of happiness, it's holiness. Instead of, uh, instead of it being all about happiness, now it's about learning to be holy and bringing glory to God. You see, the problem with being your own God is that none of us can save ourselves. None of us can pay the price that we owe God for our sin. Not one of us. But Jesus paid the price for sin by dying on the cross so that anyone who turns to him, humbling themselves in repentance, trusting in him as their substitution, they're they're taking their place before God and surrendering their life to him, to Jesus, that person will be saved from the penalty of sin. Only Jesus can save us. And so only Jesus is worth turning our hearts to. I have one final thought, one final verse to to close this series on. The prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we put anything, anything on the seat of the throne of our hearts, other than God, it's like choosing to drink stale, stagnant, bacteria-contaminated water when right next to that cistern there's this this, this stream of fresh, flowing river coming out of this fountain, life-giving water right next to us. And that's exactly what we do. We we choose that, that contaminated, that dirty water anytime we give our hearts, anytime we turn our hearts to something or someone other than God. And God says that anything else that we pursue above him is like a broken cistern. It's like a broken cistern. It will not satisfy. It will not Uh, give you any sense of relief it will not hold any water and the heavens he tells us the heavens are looking on in horror he says be appalled O heavens they're looking on in horror when we turn our hearts to what is false and unsatisfying did you catch what nebuchadnezzar did in verse 34 when his life finally turned around did you catch what he did when he finally changed he says i lifted my eyes up to heaven. And friends, that is the best thing that you and I can do today and every day. Turn our hearts to the Lord. Give our hearts to him more fully. It's a process. It's a lifelong process. But the more we do it, the better we get at it. The more we give ourselves to him, the more his glory is made known in the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of what happened here with King Nebuchadnezzar. And God, in a lot of ways, we can probably each see ourselves in this story, or see what we want to be in this story. But Lord, what we see here is that only you, only you are the Most High God. Only you are worthy of our worship. And so we turn our hearts more fully to you right now, Lord. And we ask you to fill us. We turn to you instead of any broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. Knowing that only you can satisfy, only you can give life. Lord, may we not turn on our lives souls, our souls hearts. thousands of people around the world you can go to our website biblestudypodcasts.org and you can make a donation on the right hand side by clicking on the support box again we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.